I'm Mike Gillis. And I'm Casey Doran. And this is Radio vs. the Martians. Black Beauty, equine fiction. Equine fiction. <laughs> Almost as good as ursine fiction oh. and ursience fiction. I don't, it's been a while since I've actually had a bear-focused thing. You know the person, Aaron Hunter, who does the warrior books? By the way, Aaron Hunter is not a, a real person. It's like Franklin Dixon or whoever it is that writes the Hardy Boys books, where it's a name the different writers write as. But anyways, oh. uh, Aaron Hunter, the warriors, you know, Wait, feral- what's that? what's that called? It's like ghostwriting? Um, Where multiple authors write under the same name? Well, I usually call it a pseudonym. But it's not, it's got to be a different thing, different nim, because it's well, not the it's same, the same relationship. Thing. The, the Hardy Boys, Nancy Drew, where you have a writer whose name goes on every book, but you have a stable of writers that write all the books. Hmm. Anyways, Aaron Hunter writes these, these books that are, you know, about feral cats. It's kind of a watership down YA sort of thing. Aaron Hunter's not a real person. I was curious about this because when you look at the. The the bio in the back of these books. I work at a used bookstore, by the way, so I have plenty of opportunity to look at YA books. Um, the bio in the back, not of these, just for secret reasons. Yeah, the bio. It's not. It's, no, no. Uh, the bio in the back of these books is super vague. It just says this person here owns a cat, and I'm like, well, that's not. No, even. Even when, you know, you had like a fake writer, you know, where Stephen King was writing as Richard Bachman, mm-hmm. he had a fake picture with a fake bio for Richard Bachman. So it's like there was a real person being created there, but Aaron Hunter was always vague, and I found out that Aaron Hunter was a bunch of people, but Aaron Hunter, the- Wait, wait col- a second. Is it is it ethical to have a fake picture? Wait, and, and okay, two questions. One, is it ethical to have a fake picture and a fake bio? Number two, that picture's a picture of somebody, isn't it? Yeah. Well, it's a <laughs> photograph. They didn't create this person in a computer. It's not like Max Headroom or something. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I believe it was his a neighbor or a carpenter or somebody that he knew from his town. Somebody that wasn't otherwise famous. Anyways, Aaron Hunter actually has a series of books about polar bears when you said Ursine fiction. Ah. I was like, that's the only bear-centric fiction I can think of, except for maybe Golden Compass has an armored bear character. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Also, um, it's uh, a screed. That was a bit of a screed, a bit of a polemic, wasn't it? Yeah. yeah. Have you actually st- read I, the series? No, I, I, I actually held off on watching the film. Because I was like, I was like, oh, I, I heard that the books are interesting. They clearly never made anything other than the first movie. So I'm like, no, I want to, I want to, I don't, I don't want to have a dirty palette when I go into. Okay, so I have read the books. That's the his Dark Material series that Philip Pullman wrote, and in a lot of ways, the series is essentially anti Narnia. I, can get, I can get on board with that. It's a very kind of godless, anti-authoritarian kind of vibe to it, where it's a fantasy series that does something I really, really love, which is has alternate universes and realities and stuff in it, traveling between our worlds and things. And it does have talking bears in it. And the <laughs> the key villains throughout the series are basically an alternate universe of the Catholic Church. Mm. It's essentially mm. a version of them that kind of runs London and Europe. And... Uh, that was something that got pretty judiciously scrubbed out of the movie. I, the mm. problem is that the plot of the second and third book, which they would have, I assume, make into a movie too, turns that way up to 11, and I have no way to scrub the rest of that out of these other two movies without changing the plot completely. Because I don't know if you're familiar with the plot of the, the second two books. I think it's The Subtle Knife and The Amber Spyglass. I'm, I'm not, but now you've got me interested Okay, I want to. I want to read maybe the first book now. It's well worth it, but if you guys don't, let's major spoilers right now. Clank. Okay. Yep. Um, more. The character who's played by Daniel Craig in the movie, who is the lead character's dad. Daniel Craig is in that movie. Daniel I, Craig I'm, is in. I've, I've missed this whole thing. Okay, I so have. so Daniel Craig is sort of this rogue scientist guy who's trying to figure this sort of stuff out and harness this energy. And what you find out is he has this multiversal plot to kill God. Oh yeah! Oh, nice. That God is this sort of evil tyrant, and it's it's crazy. So you, that's something you can't actually do without adapting the, a completely different story and calling it his dark is, materials. I mean, is there a way to do sort of that spin where you're like, 
It's not God, it's the devil, because the devil was put in charge, sort of thing. No, it's got to be God. It was basically God. I'm just, I'm just trying to find a way to like share it with everybody and be like, you can read it this way. And I mean, no, could, I would be the, trying too hard. The only other fictional character I know that has had that as a premise was Lobo. Oh, where he kills God? <laughs> but, yes, but that's that's neither here but nor there. I think you know what? <laughs> I think people can be enough of a grown up that you could read something and has an ideological bent that you don't share without having to do some sort of mental gymnastics to still like it. If I can watch something like Signs or Narnia or any of that stuff, if I can enjoy something that has a Christian premise, not being a Christian, and find a way to enjoy it then they can do the fucking same. Just be a fucking grown-up. Not everyone has the same opinions of you. You're reading a work of fiction. Sometimes it's good and sometimes it's bad, and the ideology doesn't have to make it good or bad. You could, you could also present it this way. You could be like, I think you're going to like this movie, and it's not going to bother you because your confidence in God's self-confidence won't be affected by any sort of criticism you might get. I don't know. I'm just trying to figure out how you would frame that. I, I think if you even have to give them this pep talk, they're not going to like it. Okay. Otherwise, if they'd already be grown up enough to go, wow, I didn't agree with the premise, but I still liked ABC. Yeah. Because I can give something where I do agree with the premise. Again, say, uh, I know that Casey and I, we always refer to this as the Captain Planet problem, mm-hmm. where it's got an ideology <laughs> yes. that I am very sympathetic to, but it makes me want to burn styrofoam. That's how much I hate it. Oh, no. It's so ham-handed and so stupid, and it makes, it makes me look bad. It isn't just that this is a bad piece of art. It's that it also has that added bonus of being embarrassing. Well, wasn't uh, Golden Compass the film also a post-Lord of the Rings fantasy, high fantasy blockbuster movie? Yes. So didn't it, it of course, it was going to borrow from a lot of things. It was going to change a lot of things well, to end up with more of a Lord of the Rings-y type formula? Well, I think what was happening is that the Lord of the Rings was such a huge surprise hit. So they're saying, what other fantasy trilogies can we adapt? What other, it's at the same time, Harry Potter. And they have the bonus of this also being a YA book. So, of course, you're going to say, what else is there? What else can we make into a blockbuster right away? Because then you don't have to invent all of this stuff. You just have to adapt this stuff. Yeah. What else will have the same controversy? Yeah. (laughs) They have to think of it. There really isn't. You know what? Sometimes Harry Potter and Golden Compass. I'm just saying while we're drawing comparisons. I think that was the thing is they steered away from the, the religion angle of it because Harry Potter had already drummed up so much, you know, I guess angry... Church, there was pearl a, clutching busybodies getting angry about things. There was a moral panic. There was a moral panic for Harry Potter there for a little bit. But the advantage Harry Potter had is it was so incredibly popular that no amount of pearl clutching parents could ever stop it. That train was coming through the station, and it doesn't matter how many people who were just horrified, just horrified for the children. <laughs> Was never hocus, gonna, hocus pocus. Because how many of their children loved it too? You've you fucking lost that battle. Uh, my I, my older brother. Uh, I remember I was sitting. This is like at a Christmas or Thanksgiving or something, and this is probably the first or second Harry Potter movie. And he said something like, "He's like, I just, I just, I just don't like Harry Potter, but but you know, I really like Lord of the Rings. So I don't know what that makes me." And I was like. It starts with an H and ends with hypocrite. That's, that's what it makes you. And it's so funny that there's that cognitive dissonance um, that even the moral moral panics can have. Is that yeah, you know, like Lord of the Rings is something that's pure because it kind of existed in parallel with Narnia, I guess. So it's well, you know, something that's pure. maybe like the author, and then also no, it's just because it's old. No, I I can oh. see that it's just I think because if something is several decades old, it's less threatening than something that's new. Because something that's new, it's got a marketing push behind it. There's a big company that's trying to you know trying to get you to pay attention to it, trying to buy it, trying to like that. In, that is the is the Kindle. The kindling, excuse me, screw you, Amazon. It was the kindling to the <laughs> product fire. Placement. For the kindling fire. To, to the ah, another uh, product ah. placement. <laughs> it was the kindling to the fire for this particular moral panic. Is there's a big company that wants you to read this? You know, so it's just it's popular. It's just a popular moral panic. Yeah, I think uh, popular will always power through it. But there's that point where it's not the biggest thing in the world anymore. And there's this cycle that we go through. Yeah, something is because no one's boycotting D and D. Oh, I know, not anymore. Yeah. But I mean, there was that point where something was new and people, you know, want to make money railing against it and saying it's Satan this, Satan that. It, and eventually what you have is that you have these books that come out like 10 years later called The Gospel of Harry Potter. And <laughs> these are books on how somebody who's like an evangelical can continue to love Harry Potter and finding parallel themes because all fiction Yeah, I mean, they did that themes. for The Matrix no, and now where, everything Now, else. where does that fit in? 
because the, the, this is also a phenomenon in publishing where they have the philosophy of X yes. and they add it there. To me, it just those are the same two of the same type of thing. You're just trying to make some money off of your piggybacking on someone else's franchise, and you have a contingency of viewer who's like, well, I like reading about well, philosophy. I think it goes back and forth. I think on one hand, there's a cynical thing, and I think there's a genuine thing. On the other hand, hmm. the genuine thing is I want to get people interested in philosophy, and if I have to use something like Harry Potter or The Simpsons to do it. I will. And then there's the other one that's like, I can slap the Simpsons on it and it'll fucking sell because you're a moron and you'll shovel that shit into your mouth. (laughs) And I think those things end up working together. And I know that there's always Christian publishers that are like the gospel of the Simpsons. The Simpsons was incredibly controversial when it came out when we were like in elementary school. Mm -hmm. In fifth grade, they banned Bart Simpson t-shirts at my elementary school. Because Eat My Shorts was just too too risque. And you had, of course, evangelical groups screaming about how immoral and controversial this series was. And now you have those same sorts of people embracing like your Ned Flanders character. They love Ned. <laughs> and it's it's it always comes full circle that eventually the pop culture popular thing will win. It will eventually win and they'll have to find a way to make it reconcile with their preconceived ideology. It's Here's just, my my question. What was the or was there an outrage when Lord of the Rings first came out? It would be interesting to discover if there maybe was oh, one. I think it was since it was confined to literature and since it was the first half of the 20th century. I just I I can't imagine that there were book burnings in Alabama. No, for, you know, for a, a British it really fantasy story. It really finally got big in the 1960s in the U.S. Yeah. with college kids, and I think it was just under the radar. I think with the other angle of it, too, is the fact that it was written by somebody who was a Christian theologian from a British, you know, from Oxford. Yeah, um, makes that, it safe. I mean, it's like practically another C.S. Lewis. Because like, he was good friends with C.S. Lewis. Yeah. So, that's, I mean, that's what I'm kind of saying. He's kind of safe because he's in that realm. He's I always that... preferred The Lord of the Rings to Narnia because I thought that the Christian elements of Narnia were just so heavy handed and the Christian elements of Lord of the Rings were much more subtle mm-hmm. and much more interesting and less obvious. It's like, don't you get it? The lion is Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> and it's, it's like, yeah, we get it. We get it. We get it. And also, I have a real fucking grudge against Narnia because they wouldn't let fucking Susan into heaven because she discovered boys in makeup and wouldn't continue to believe in Narnia as a grown-up. So you don't get to go into heaven, Susan. Everyone else gets to go to the magical reality that you stop believing in. And I'm like, you know what? (laughs) Fuck you. She saved the world like three goddamn times. Fuck you, C.S. Lewis. That's how I feel about it. And I, and I, I got how you, that. How do you feel about it, Mike? I got that interpretation of it before I even knew the Christian element, before I even knew I was an atheist, before any of that. All I knew is that was fucking unfair when I was 10 years old. That was unfair. Oh. Oh. I'm glad you got oh. that out of your system. I think Mike. I had a breakthrough just yeah. now. Glad you got out that out of your system. So uh, there's actually something that, uh, speaking of breakthroughs, I've sort of made a change in myself. You know, we're talking about New Year's resolutions. And hare, hare. I've hare decided Krishna? to do something. Oh, no. Oh, oh no. So, oh, go, go ahead. Oh, yeah. I, ahead. I've decided to do something a little bit different this year. And it was after a discussion I had with a coworker about a resolution that podcaster and uh, stand-up comedian Doug Benson does every year. And I decided to try to cash in and do this myself. And it was, I am going to watch 365 movies that I have not seen before this year. But like Doug Benson, are you going to do them high? No, no. <laughs> Are you looking for movie suggestions, or do you already have your list? I don't have a list in advance, so the answer is technically yes and yes. Um, ah, hmm. The be- I guess the backbone of the beginning of my list is stuff that's on Netflix and DVDs that people have bought me over the years that I haven't gotten around to watching yet. And mm. that's actually a lot. A lot of things that I just never got around to seeing. And considering that we're recording this in January already, this already got started, I started on January 1st. And I am up to, God, at this point, 15 movies? Nice. Like a that's, little bit ahead of schedule. That's good. Yeah, I that's figured because I had to cram. I've already missed a couple days this month so far. Uh, so do um, you guys want to know what I've watched so I, far? Yeah, I would love to hear it. Uh, I first watched uh, Chaos on the Bridge, which is the William Shatner-directed Star Trek documentary about the creation of Star Trek The Next Generation. Then I watched uh, National Lampoon's Animal House, which I oh my god, I had not seen that before. No now. way! It was on Netflix. I'm like, well, fuck it. I have no excuse. Oh, Blutarski. 
Um, I watched Back in Time, which is a fan documentary on Back to the Future. Again, oh. Netflix. Uh, Kung Fury, which is a movie that I think tries way too hard. <laughs> oh, is this the one with like, like it's almost like rock and roll and lots of flying stunts and stuff? Or yeah, maybe? when he fights Kung Fu Hitler. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, that's that one. I, this was directed by Tommy Wiseau, wasn't it? No, this was oh. much more competent than Tommy Wiseau. I, I think it was like a Swedish guy that made it. There's a lot of things I like in it, but it just tries too hard to be cool and retro. Um, that was my opinion. Uh, I watched For the Love of Spock, which is the Leonard Nimoy's son's documentary about his dad. Just very, very good. Was it, I, I'd recommend it to I mean, every every listener, diehard listener knows I'm a Trekkie, uh, diehard Trekkie fan. Yeah. The diehards know the diehards. Um, it was fantastic. It's a great it's movie. Re- it's I, really, really well done. Very personal, too. And it just happened to have been, He was already making it before his dad died. Like, you know, I mean, anyone who loves Star Trek knows um, Spock as a character knows it very well. I think what was interesting was was cool to get to know who Leonard Nimoy was as a person around the time when Star Trek was happening and then after it got canceled. Because it's, you know, it's equal parts sort of heartbreaking and also uh, inspiring because he's someone who easily could have fallen into just being this character for the rest of his life or being being forgotten totally, but he transcended it. Yeah, I, it's a great movie. It's a really personal one, too, about this guy's relationship with his dad and what it feels like when there's these diehard fans and you feel like you have to share your dad with, like, millions of people. Yeah. And uh, I saw Nightcrawler with Jake Gyllenhaal. Oh, yeah. Oh, my fucking God. The fact that Jake Gyllenhaal didn't win Best Actor is a fucking crime. That is the best portrayal of a sociopath that I have seen in anything. It's a great movie. I watched uh, Turbo Kid. Oh, yeah. That was my big recommendation yeah, for you. Yeah. Michael Ironside plays a great post-apocalyptic villain, doesn't he? It was a lot of fun. I think it's a better um, nostalgia piece than uh, uh, Kung Fury was. Yeah. I watched No Country for Old Men, which was mm. way overdue for me to watch it. God, ha- Javier Bardem is the scariest <laughs> yeah. fucking human being in movies. Yeah, absolutely. I, I just, oh my God. Um, Rogue One was Star Wars Story. Sure, sure. I watched that one in theaters. Uh, we kind of need to talk about that. We do. Um, I, I watched There Will Be Blood, and I came to oh. the conclusion that I will never, ever, ever want to fight Daniel Day-Lewis. Oh yeah, oh God. If there's like an actor that, you know, you're terrified, like... I don't care who the martial arts masters of the world are. I would never, ever, ever <laughs> want to cross Daniel Day-Lewis. <laughs> if you've seen him kill one man with a bowling pin. Oh, my God. I'm done. Oh, Jesus <laughs> Christ. He's a terrifying human being. Um, I watched Tucker and Dale versus Evil, which I no, enjoyed. I, I, I liked that's that one. one that I haven't seen. That's the first one on your list that I or the second one on your list that I haven't seen. That's, that's uh, Alan Tudyk. It's sort of a, a flipping the 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 tropes and the jokes behind the sort of murderous hillbilly movie it's about a couple of guys who just want to go fishing a couple of college kids come up and through a series of accidents get mistaken for murderous hillbillies themselves (laughs) and they just keep trying to help these people who keep getting murdered in these horrible accidents that are not their fault and they're just like oh my god everybody's dying it's great i really seems like this the kind of uh genre deconstruction that say like um Hot Fuzz and um, the other uh, Edgar Wright one. Oh, you're talking about um, the Shaun of the Dead. Shaun of the Dead, yes. That kind of of a send-up, right? I wouldn't. It's it's a very similar one to that. I wouldn't Mm. say I'd say it's as good as those ones, Mm. but I really did enjoy it. Mm. Then I watched uh, Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, the one with Gary Oldman. Sure. It's nice to watch something nice and slow and ponderous. Yeah, it feel you feel like a grown up watching that movie. Yeah, I, that's this is funny because I just was telling this anecdote again today. I saw that movie in the theater the first weekend or the second weekend that it came out because it was in December. This was a December release because it was definitely an Oscar bait contender with my father in law. I call it the most geriatric movie screening that I've ever been in. So I went in and it was like an 11.30 matinee, 11.30 a.m. Well, the most geriatric until they do the hard reboot of Matlock. <laughs> Matlock the movie starring Donald Glover. No, um, the in the movie, halfway through, there were no less than two people around me snoring. And then I think in the, in the last quarter of the movie... It happened, and it was maybe about five or six rows in front of me to the right, that uh, someone's oxygen hose got un- unhinged from the uh, from the tank, and all I heard was, and they were trying to put the hose back on. See, all I can think of when I hear that sound in an unhinged oxygen tank is that a flame's going to hit it. It's just like, shit, no! 
No, I didn't. I wasn't fearing. I wasn't necessarily fearing that uh, the You'd theater was going to burn a down. Fireball? Yeah, no. I just there were just too many old people there. That's what I'm saying. Don't worry, they'll be gone soon. <laughs> <laughs> then I watched uh, Last Stand. Uh, yeah. Of course, we just yep. did that for the show, and then I watched Moonrise Kingdom, the Wes Anderson movie, and I love that. Thing. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, and I'm in the middle of uh, Man vs. Snake, which is a <laughs> video game documentary about the game Nibbler, which I, even I hadn't heard of before now. But it's like Pac-Man with a snake that can't eat itself. It's or like you die. that. It's ah. like that. It's like that snake game that you had on your old Nokia phone. But this is the arcade version of that. Was from the the mid '80s, I think. It kind of seems to operate under the same rules as the light cycles in the movie Tron. Yep. Where yep. you're trailing a thing that you can't run into yourself, except you're just competing with yourself. Well, it's one of those. It's kind of funny. It's kind. Of, it's a documentary that's kind of a counterpart to King of Kong that I know we've talked. We've talked about a little bit on like on the Nintendo panel. Um, there are certain of the classic arcade games that. Um, they have an end, whether or not it was a planned end or just the memory on the game runs out and the game will end after a certain point. And then there are games like this that just go on indefinitely. So this is kind of a piggybacking. It's a cousin to King of Kong, but it's sort of about the other this other wing of people who are arcade uh, arcade play- competitive arcade players about these marathons. So the people who play for like seventy hours at a time. Oh Jesus! Can you, can you just yeah. imagine? And of course, the games are such that you can build up extra lives, so you can go take a piss break if you need to. Obviously, you're going to need to after that point in time. Yeah. But like, can you imagine just like with the control with your your wrist and your arm doing the same motions for like sixty, seventy hours? Look at a, a time? repetitive stress injury. Yes, I mean, I think there's, I think you're, you're, you're doing that. You're committing to doing that to, to get the world record. It's kind of insane. It's kind of insane. The protagonist is the is is a is a, not not as colorful of a character as the ones that were in King of Kong, though. Yeah, the, it's not Steve Weeby who is no. very much just a live action Charlie Brown. <laughs> um, oh my God, he was Charlie Brown. But it, I think this one's pretty good so far. I'm yeah. about halfway oh, you, through. Finished it, of course. Um, I really like it. It's yeah. just there's kind of that weird idea that you can become with the right kind of movie emotionally invested in a thing that does not have huge stakes that you don't really care that much about it's not like this is hinging on a presidential election or a war or whether we're going to stop the codes or whatever the (laughs) macguffin of any movie is there's no blue laser going into the sky no it's it's just about whether a guy can get his championship title to a thing that most people have never heard of back again (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well, it's also something about the glor. We've entered the era of the glorification of nerds for sure, yeah. and then and a and a overweight uh, nerd who's good at playing a video game can be the transcendent hero of a movie, and yeah. that's awesome. Yeah, that's awesome. It's great. I like the fact that the guy in the movie even had it where his own coworkers had no idea he was the champ. <laughs> he just had to tell. He had to get like time off from work to be in a documentary <laughs> about him, and they're like, "Wait, what?" So yeah, I think that's kind of cool. I'm I'm really wondering because because you're you're only you're like a what you're 14. How, how long are you? 12 into them? I'm in the middle of part of number 15. Oh, right number now. 15. Yeah. So you only have 350 to go. Yeah, I'm <laughs> I'm I'm getting there. But the thing is, we're still in the first month, and I'm gonna have a couple days where I knock out two. It's everything that I watch for podcast of La Vista Baby that I haven't seen before. Right. It's everything that I have to do to cram for a panel episode. Sure. I can. As long as I haven't seen it before, it counts. I'm not counting TV shows, but I would love to get recommendations from all sorts of people because if it's on Netflix or if I can get it easily, the nice thing about working at a used bookstore is I can check out DVDs from work, borrow them, watch them, and take them back. Um, you got nice. the you got the Quentin Tarantino uh, arrangement there. It's like, pretty, like you're working at a video store in the '80s. It is pretty sweet. Yeah. So, Mike, have you seen Kumare? I have not. It's definitely worth seeing. Um, our friend Sam would also recommend T- it. To tell you. us about it. Tell us about it. So Kumare is about um, this guy who um, he's like learning about um, gurus, um, you know, mostly from India, and like. These people a, a will white guy, a white guy. No, he's he's um, he's American. Um, he's heritage is from India, so he okay. looks um, Indian. So he takes on a fake Indian accent, but the accent's since fake and grows out his hair. Um, and his point is, he wants to demonstrate how easy it is to fake being this expert that gets lots of worshippers. And so the fear 
um, that I had and then Sam also had in watching it was, oh, is this movie going to be making fun of people who follow gurus? And it turns out um, it doesn't go that way. You end up loving the people who follow him. Okay, so basically he becomes a guru. I should mention that. <laughs> he becomes oh. a guru in Arizona, walks around with a staff, long hair, kind of looks like Jesus, sort of, um, and invents meditation techniques. And he'll say things like, um, like he is a mirror and the guru is not real. The guru is what you are seeing in me, but it is really you. It is not me, you know, and his teaching is based on gurus not really being the real teacher. It's the student who's the real teacher. So it ties in well to to reality. Um, and then there's this big reveal and he he tries to reveal a couple times but he can't bring himself to tell his followers that he isn't real so the documentary is is all about about that um and i've got to say uh really well done i'll have to check that out nice, nice. it's on netflix um my i think it's still on netflix but netflix uh, yeah. so literally the lowest possible bar to viewing at this point oh it's wonderful yeah. you know how many documentaries are on netflix that i've just like well, well, this is kind of like that. There's a bunch of, like I said, the glorification of the nerd documentaries I'm seeing a lot of. I want things that are just interesting. And Kumari, mm. I'm going to add that to my list. Excellent. Let me know. Um, let me know what you think of it. I'll have to check. Oh, I would watch it again, Mike. Too. Do you know what you have to add to your list? What's that? Rogue One. Oh wait, I did. You already saw. Rogue I already one. saw Rogue One. I, I guess if we're gonna, are we gonna dive down this rabbit hole? And if so, should we ask if Sean saw Rogue One? I've not seen it. Oh. Are I you? want to. Oh, okay. <laughs> do you Is want us? Do you want us to talk openly to rip rip the viscera out of the? Uh... The, the cultural phenomena that what is he's Rogue asking uh, Sean is if we want if you want us to mm-hmm. poison the well for you <laughs> <laughs> um I I'm I can't decide what I want can we flip a coin I mean I mean because we could do it in the funniest way possible no let's not do let's not set ourselves up to do that I will I will say this without mm-hmm. spoiling anything mm-hmm. there are things in Rogue oh, One I really like let's let's do a spoiler free discussion of okay because I think we I think we could fairly easily do a spoiler free discussion okay so Rogue One as you may know as the listeners may know is the first attempt to do a sort of a non linear sequential movie that's not part of a, the main cast of characters that deals with a small stripe of the Star Wars universe. And specifically, it's how the Rebels get the Death Star plans. So on its face, it is a espionage movie. It's a spy movie. It's about um, a, a rogue team. This is a very overused concept. A rogue team whose job it is to go infiltrate uh, the Empire and steal back the plans to the Death Star. Um, and I'm, I think I think all that you really end up knowing from the... Knowing from the trailers and all that you can you could say about in uh, without being spoilers is it's a ragtag team of people who are going to fight the Empire and you've you know the Death Star is going to be part of it. Darth Vader is going to be a character who's part of it. Um, the Death Star plans are the MacGuffin that's there, um, and it's tr- it, tr- it it sets up the action that starts with uh, the first Star Wars movie, New Hope. So yeah. is, is this how they discover that one spot they need to fire the missile, basically? It, basically, yes. <laughs> yes. Okay. Yep. That there essentially is the, the question of them getting that little chip that they stick into R2-D2 and be- continues being the MacGuffin through the next movie. Mm. Which is so weird when you think about it, because they just take the Death Star plans back to the Death Star with R2-D2, and it's just like all the time they spend trying to kill Han and Luke and Leia, and they could have just captured that R2 unit and everything would have been okay. Uh, You know, this is all it's all uh, a a single movie based on like a line of dialogue, basically, in in there. It's it's many Bothans died to bring us this information. No, that's a second Death Star. This is the first Death Star. Oh, oh, that's I was expecting this Manny. Is, I was expecting Manny Bothans, the character, to be in this movie. Manuel Bothans. Yes, oh. Manny. Uh, Manny Bothans died, and everyone was like, "Oh, Manny, oh. we loved him. We loved but him." But I was. This is the one with Darth Vader picking up the dude with the cool helmet by his throat and saying, "I want to know what happened to the plans I sent you." <laughs> this is that one before he throws the dude. I into always a wall. assumed the plans were sent electronically by a radio telescope. They, they were beamed. Well, they kind of were in this movie, but we're not going to spoil oh, that. No, no, no. But um, they, when they sent, yeah. I mean, send to receive. We're talking about packets of information through a radio telescope. Yeah, yeah. it's it's a it's an interesting movie. I would say that interesting, I, huh? 
Yeah, I'm. Tr- <laughs> there are things in the movie I actually do really like. A lot of the action stuff, particularly in the second half, I think. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Are we talking about the Last Stand or Rogue One? <laughs> Rogue One. <laughs> okay. It Just is like the check. Last Stand <laughs> in that way, where yeah. there's a yes. lot of buildup and a lot of like with the Last Stand, a lot of stuff that I think is kind of unnecessary in the first half. There's yep. this whole um, subplot where they go off to meet Forrest Whitaker's character. Where, wait, wait, Forrest Whitaker's character? Yeah. Both The Last Stand and oh Rogue One? Oh, my God. Oh, no. Forrest Whitaker's taking over the beginning of all yes. these movies. But <laughs> He's taking over the worst parts of all these oh. movies. But, yeah, there's... <laughs> you could have just removed the whole subsection with them dealing with Forrest Whitaker, and it wouldn't have changed the plot at all. Hmm. There's a lot of things that it felt were kind of padding. The things that I liked the least in this movie were the fan service things. There's yep. a cameo... That is not part of the plot by the pig-faced guy that pushes Luke in the cantina. I've had the death penalty on 12 systems. And his, his fun walrus friend. Um, those guys show up for like two seconds to bump into somebody in a street and go, bruh, 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 bruh. and I'm like, well, that was fucking pointless. R2-D2 and C-3PO have a pointless cameo that they should have cut out. I think there's too much Darth Vader in this movie. And I think when you cut away a lot of the fan servicey stuff, the characters you mean it wasn't it wasn't fun to see these characters pop up just for the heck of it, or did it take you out of the story? Well, or? the phrase you just used that that sums it up is just for the heck of it. Oh, okay. is that there really isn't a reason to have them other than to be a thing that's there to be a low hanging fruit to solicit applause from the audience? Like they're really excited to see a thing they re- they recognize, but doesn't actually have a point other than to remind you that this is a thing that you know from when you were a kid. It, it's I, I don't know if it, if it's so for me I like this movie a lot less on my second viewing because I I saw it twice you saw it once just right, once. Mike? Um, I am not sure if if it's a perception of Star Wars fans in the way that LucasArts believes Star Wars what Star Wars fan likes or as they actually are. But the, but if they if it is just the perception of what. LucasArts believes Star Wars fans to be, Star Wars fans are fucking intolerable. Absolutely intolerable. But I want to take the, the fan stuff out of it. That was, I think, the... The, the, the fan the... stuff is, I think, is the most important part because yeah. it's like LucasArts has just decided that um, one of one of the biggest weaknesses that I've, I always rail on is, like, why is it that we need to obligatorily, even in the prequels, R2-D2 and C-3PO have to be there the whole time. Well, it's because you can't have a Star Star Wars movie without R2-D2 and C-3PO. I was really hoping, for this movie, I was really hoping you could do a, we could do a genre piece. It could be the same universe, and we could do a genre piece that was a different story that didn't need to include all of the hullabaloo of everything else because the, the universe is large. It's a galaxy far, far away. Lots of people are in it. The Empire is huge. There are people that are so disconnected from the center of the Empire that there's slavery, right? Mm-hmm. Um and I was really, really, really hoping that they w- that we would be able to be in a place where we could not, um, we could see things that just did not have to directly call back to those things because they get so they so overburden the uh, the telling of the story that that it makes you groan and roll your eyes. Well, the the problem I have yeah. with that though is that it takes screen time away from actually building up most of the people as characters. I think my problem with it is that most of the characters in the movie are really underwritten. With, Mm. I would say, three exceptions. The two monk characters, including the one that goes kind of old Rambo, you know, uh, Donnie Yen's friend. Mm -hmm. Baze. Yeah, Baze. And what is Donnie Yen's character's name? Churl. Churl. Okay, I didn't know that. But those two monks, the blind monk and his Rambo friend, and, uh, (laughs) well, he had an awesome, you know, crazy gun uh, that it was the first time I've seen a gun that actually goes into a backpack. Yeah. First automatic weapon in Star Wars. But uh, those two guys that actually have a personality and they have an arc and they have a past that they talk about that plays into their interaction with each other and they have well, an arc and, and that builds into the Star Wars the Star Wars uh, mythos it does like, it's it's no it's interesting i like that i like that i like i those are the two characters i think were passable the robot yes uh, k2so k2so was yep. a great he actually has more of an emotional arc i think than um, a lot of the other characters, the whole thing at the end where she hands him, spoiler, the blaster. Yeah. That moment there, he gets more out of his performance from being handed this item, even though he's a motion capture character. What does that say about this movie, though? It says that the main characters are underwritten. Mm. I mean, this is the same problem we had with um, a Star Trek Beyond, where everything is great except for an underwritten villain. Where it feels like, in this case, everybody is underwritten. Yeah. Where everybody occasionally I know that um, Diego Luna has a couple scenes where he comes that close to being a character who has a past and a motivation 
And the other problem is that Felicity Jones's character has this huge shift halfway through the movie where she goes from being a person who doesn't want to get involved, who doesn't have right. a personal stake, right. to somebody who's motivating other people to save the day. And I don't really ever believe that changeover. Yeah, they, don't, I, they don't pay it off. That's for so, sure. I mean, it was stuff like that where that's the, the weak part of the movie. That's the stuff that will make me want to watch it again. Well, I mean, and the, but the but the the parallel that we have to the last stand is is that the movie spends the last 40 minutes or so something doing an action and sort of a series of action sequences that seem very familiar because they ape um one of the original trilogy movies right it seems Mm -hmm. very familiar in that respect and it does what star wars does particularly well which is you know space battles and high stakes and uh and high adventure with the the your sort of the familiar spaceships and and does it have the the orchestral music too it the does it, it's not uh john williams though yeah, it's, it's michael Giannocchio, right uh giacchino giacchino michael giacchino is a great composer i just worried that there was nothing at least from my experience watching it really memorable in this particular score yeah it, it seemed actually at the beginning it seemed incredibly um derivative yeah, because he's intentionally and, aping John Williams right. here, and it's a shame because I think Michael Giacchino is a great composer. Oh yeah, his his start his Star Trek movie theme is amazing. I, I love, love his that. Star Trek movie theme. Yeah. Um, he did The Incredibles. He did the show Lost, where he had to come up with themes for dozens of characters, and they were all incredibly memorable and recognizable. He did uh, Pixar's Up. He's yeah. a great composer. He's a good composer. Because I, I had a friend who told me, because I haven't seen it, but I had a friend who told me that she really liked um, Rogue One because it was nice to see a movie that felt like the original trilogy. Yeah. yeah. And they definitely do, they do the pr- production design, they do a lot, they make a lot of effort to make it look like that old universe, the lived-in universe that the they The 70s have. universe. Yes. Like you mentioned before, there's a lot of people with just mustaches in this movie. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> there's some sideburns in this movie. Sure. And sure. I like that. I think that fits in really well. Do the uh, sideburns help with the the nostalgia? They are an integral part of them getting the plans. So oh. here's the here's the question that I have for you for you, Mike. Is so the the thing is is that this is a Star Wars movie. It's a Star Wars story. That's the part of the title of the movie. Yeah. Um, but if this movie were stripped of the st- elements that make it Star Wars re- references to the Force, droids, and X wings, and they were made generic ships of the same ilk. Would this be interesting? Would this be a movie that's going to make a billion dollars at the at the box office worldwide? A billion dollars at the box office worldwide? No. Yeah. Um, could it be interesting? I think you'd have to rewrite big sections of it so that the movie also, in, in parts of it, does rely on you having seen Star Wars, which I don't think is a huge jump to assume that an audience has seen Star Wars. No. Because it's kind of like, you know, there's there's a list of movies that you just kind of assume that people have seen. And Star Wars is kind of on there. It's wait, wait. Of... Have you seen Star Wars, Sean? <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. I think you admitted that to in our last one, but I, I, d- I thought I, I would twist this twist the knife a little. It's, yes. Yes. It's one, of the, it's one of the two movie universes I've seen. Okay. Yes. Star think, Wars and Lord of the Rings. I okay. think you can do, a, you know, a movie universe <laughs> where there's an oppressive evil government and a bunch of people who go on essentially a suicide mission to get these plans to the right people. Mm-hmm. It would have been the ending would have been written in a different way where it would have implied a sequel where this one is implying a thing you've already seen so you right. would stage it differently. Right. But I think you could make this thing work. I think there just had to be the same rewrite changes that I would want otherwise, which is you can't rely on the recognizability of the ships in the universe to cover for the fact that the characters are a little weak. Mm-hmm. Um I think that it's far more memorable than, say, Avatar is in that regard. Uh, I think it has more personality than a lot of things do. It has more personality hmm. in Star Wars Episode One. That was always the question in my mind. If Star Wars Episode One really was the first movie that was released, it would be far less memorable. Right. Where I think that there's hmm. stuff in this movie that's interesting, at least. And the robot is funny, and I do like the blind monk, especially there's a there's a bit where they throw a sack over his head and he reminds him, uh, I'm blind. <laughs> that that stuff does work. I, I, I still have to say, and I think I think you did like this movie a lot better than I than I did. I, I will go back to what I said on our George Lucas panel low those many years ago, is that I truly believe that the Star Wars fandom is in the throes of fanboy Stockholm syndrome. Um, and that they and that we are the reason why this is making so much money is because people have invested too much in of their lives into it being good mm-hmm. and they cannot face whether or not it is bad. Um, this is this is a this is a 
terrible turn that Star Trek fans have had to actually take with the J.J. Abrams Star Trek movies, where it took them by the end of Into Darkness to find out, oh, wait a minute, the, he's not actually that good at doing the at doing these stories, and there needs to be a radical uh, change in direction for them to happen. I think that, um, I don't know. I mean, that being said, I have more, I have more, as being someone who has much less of a dog in the fight, I have more hope that, um, I have a new hope, that <laughs> Star Wars Episode Eight because Ryan Johnson is going to be at the helm, it's going to be something that's probably more interesting because it doesn't, it won't have the reverence that and the sort of cheap autistic tricks that J.J. Abrams has for, for his characterizations will have. And it will have to necessarily have to expand this conflict and the scope of the universe for it to keep going as a franchise. I, I will say this about Abrams and Star Wars. I think he made exactly the movie that people needed to make because the last Star Wars, anything that we had gotten is something that is universally kind of panned at this point. Maybe not when it first came out, but I, I've definitely cooled on Force Awakens since it's come out. I liked it a lot better when I first saw it. I, a lot of the mistakes that I'd say the movie has are in writing and world building and explaining things mm. in a way that makes sense or being like, wait, what is this? What's the difference between the Republic and the Resistance? Right. And a lot of the writing things, a coincidence of them just running into Han and Chewie right away is right. a little bit weird. Right. I mean, that sort of stuff. But the thing that makes... The Force Awakens really work is I think that the characters that they've created yep. with Ray and Finn and Poe Dameron and Kylo Ren, those characters are so strong that I want to see them in a really good movie. That means the second movie that they put out, Ryan Johnson, has a huge head start because he yep. doesn't have to convince people to like these characters. Yep. I want to see them on an adventure. I just want to have to see one that's a bit better planned out than Episode Seven was. And he has to find his Lando. Yeah. Yep. How you doing, Chewbacca? Oh, I love, <laughs> I love you, Lando Carizian. I'm, t- I'm telling you, is that line, that line that elevated the entire series into the stratosphere? How you doing, Chewbacca? That all you needed, all you needed to know about who Lando Calrissian was as a character was that that was when he was that first being honest. So yeah, so you what pirate? Do you, what do you think, Sean? I mean, how how do you feel about Star Wars as it is now? Oh. um... I have a, an opinion <laughs> that's very just one that's extremely unpopular that I, I won't say on this episode. No, no, no. no. you can't say Boo. that, and you have to share it. No, now. you have to you have to bring me back again. At least at least tease at least tease your unpopular opinion. Okay, okay. So there's I'll tease it. Okay, so there's a certain character that was geared towards a certain age group that I was in, oh, okay. and it worked. <laughs> so oh. there you go. Are we talk- I don't know what we're, we're talking, talking, are we talking about. Are talking about Jar Jar Binks? The JJ- Find out next the J- time. The JJB word. <laughs> I gotta leave. You guys won't invite me don't, back. Don't be embarrassed. Don't be embarrassed. No, here's the thing. I like lots of shitty things. Seriously, so. Sean, this is the thing you need to understand about Casey and myself, is that the more divergent your opinion is from ours, the more we love it. All right. Yes. Okay, I'll admit it. I like Jar Jar Binks. Oh! Yes. Well, how, how old were you? I mean, well, we're really going to out you. How old were you when uh, episode one came out? What year was it? 99. 99. Okay, I was nine years old. There you go. So, I mean, that's who Jar Jar is for. It's for nine-year-olds. <laughs> I was nine years old. That's true. Oh, So how do you like Jar Jar now, though? Do you still have that nostalgia attached well, to it? Well, the thing was... The thing, okay, here's what happened. So the hipster thing was like really popular. It was popular to make jokes about being a hipster, like liking things before they were cool or liking things that people don't like. When I found out that Jar Jar Binks was hated, I ended up liking him more (laughs) simply because he was hated, which isn't a good reason to like something. I mean, you should form your opinions um, uh, independent of that. But uh, then I was in the age, you know, like late teens when I figured out everyone hated him. So there you go. Um. Yeah, I I liked him. I liked him in the trailer. Um, I liked the way he pronounced things. Ooh. Do you? Yeah. I mean, but looking back on it now, do you do you see that from the perspective of people who their vision of Star Wars came from the original trilogy, and they came from a very different. There's a very different polish to the prequel trilogy there's a very different vibe and polish to the prequel trilogy do you do you you understand now that the hatred doesn't come from it just being kitty and goofy and over the top but it comes from like the kind of excess that george lucas took with ewoks 
and then taking it to the next yes. level, right? Where yes. they're like, we, where of course this can be a kids movie, but this is also a kids movie where people get their hands chopped off, right? Right. So the best there, kind of kids movie. Yeah, yes. So so there's only so far that you can take the it's a kid movie thing. In in a universe where the main character is going to get his fucking hand chopped off and and you know, I I wonder throw an old guy down a well. I wonder too if this is a problem where the fans, including people like us, Casey, are mm-hmm. part of this problem. Where is that because we've demanded this fidelity to an original trilogy of movies, and that you hit all of these tropes that we recognize, that they're afraid to do anything new and different. That. As bad as I think the prequel movies were, at least they were doing something differently than the original ones were. They were going to a different place and having a different kind of story and having a different tone. But now we're so afraid to do anything that, of course, Force Awakens is in many ways a mashup of A New Hope with mixes in of uh, elements that you get in uh, Empire Strikes Back. Sure. Um, I think we kind of needed a mashup to sort of write the ship a little bit but i don't want to get stuck in that place where all we do is callbacks and i wonder if people in our demographic are acting as an anchor on this or if the star wars universe for as diverse as it seems on the outside really is this tiny little thing that can only do one tone and only do this group of tropes and only have this kind of characters yeah. and this kind of dialogue and this kind of story. Well, this, this was my, <clears throat> this was my uh, conceptualization because endless parallel, uh, endless comparisons, rather, Star Trek, Star Wars. Uh, it's not mutually exclusive. You can love both of them at all. However, the one thing I'll say is compare two successful Star Trek movies, Wrath of Khan to save the whales to star trek 4 um two totally different types one is like a a cold war submarine combat uh, like wartime thriller movie and the other is a fish out of water comedy and they both can work independent of one another with the same characters in the same universe and can be very successful box office and critically um can you do a fish out of water comedy that works with star wars is it flexible enough to accommodate that I don't think we've tried it yet. I think that we've tried it in the way of the prequels and it failed, but it isn't that it tried anything different. It's that they tried a thing that sucks. Um, <laughs> I don't know. And I, that's, that's the question I really have is I mm. don't know if the Star Wars universe, I know that the Red Letter Media guys did a review recently of, of Rogue One. I think it's a very flawed review. And yeah. I think that they pick on the fanboys a little too much in terms right. of like, oh, X-Wings. And it's like, yeah, people like that. But at least the X-Wings, it made sense for them to be in the movie. It makes no sense for the droids to be in the movie. Right. Where I think that they apply a thing more universally than it deserves. However, there is a point that Rich Evans of Red Letter Media made, which is that same question. Is the Star Wars universe really a big sprawling universe the way that say star trek is or is it always a small thing that just feels big because it takes place in a big location well i uh, and to carry on the same question is um could you have a star trek series that does not have as as the as its main characters or at least some of its main characters members of starfleet i think we had that could- with deep space nine I mean, no, no no but i mean there are members of starfleet that are in there the question is is c- can is the limits of Star Trek, the, the bounds of what can possibly happen in Star Trek, could you do a Space Traders um, Star Trek, or would it just fail because then it becomes a generic sort of space soap opera kind of story, and it just doesn't end up working? I think there are, I think there are clearly are boundaries that end up happening there, but the way in which um, the two four narratives have been framed is such that um, Star Trek can tell more stories because it was a vehicle to st- to not tell one story, but to tell many, many, many stories over multiple episodes. Whereas Star Wars was essentially a, a vehicle to tell a story that happened over three movies. Yeah, I or that start off as one and then ended I, up being over three movies. I think you might be right. Um, I think that's that's what I fear at least. Until somebody successfully does something different with Star Wars, I think Rogue One is as close as somebody has come to succeeding in terms of having a tone that is much darker. And having more nuance than other Star Wars movies has, seeing that there are elements of the rebellion that are uglier and dirtier in this than you're used Mm. to seeing, and elements of the Empire, which are more sympathetic and more nuanced than Mm. you're used Mm -hmm. to seeing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, So, so Mike, was it... Was it darker in a good way or darker in the DC comics trying too hard to be dark? It wasn't 
the joyless dark that you get with a Zack Snyder movie where it comes across <laughs> as insecure because with Zack Snyder, the DC way, it comes across like they think that superheroes are in, inherently embarrassing and they need to fix them to prove that they're cool. By not having them smile ever, the characters are in super dangerous situations and a lot of people die in Rogue One, but you never get the sense that we're so serious that we can't afford to have jokes once in a while and have characters wisecrack between each other. I mean, the robot uh, K2SO voiced by Alan Tudyk is an example of that, that he can have uh, a kind of gallows humor to his character that I do enjoy. Um, So it's not like that. I just think that... The real question is, is whether doing that dark is stretching the bounds of what Star Wars can be into a place where it's unrecognizable because fans have such a specific vision for what they want Star Wars to be in terms of its tone and type of characters and type of story that I wonder, are we part of the problem? Are we preventing Star Wars from being bigger or is Star Wars Mm -hmm. just not capable of being bigger? Well, did did any of you see that piece um, someone wrote? I can't remember who it was, but it was this... They were describing how they thought maybe Jar Jar was going to be a Sith Lord. Oh. Um, I don't... <laughs> what? <laughs> but yeah, yeah he, he was speculating on maybe Jar Jar was going to be a Sith Lord, but then George Lucas saw how much people hated him, so he changed his plans. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I, I think it's just another one of those fan theories. I think the internet needs to have its mind blown a little less easily. <laughs> when you just have... It's just like, oh, it all fits together. Oh, my God. You know, a weird coincidence is not intent. <laughs> And the the internet is just like, oh my god, this changes it. No, it doesn't. Yeah. It's, Somebody came up with a weird fan theory. I've heard uh, all sorts of weird. I mean, people fan do theories. that. People do that with real life coincidences, and then <laughs> yeah. they and you're like, and I've seen some things, and I'm like, okay, my mind is blown, but still, like coincidences can happen and if you're looking for coincidences you're going to find them Let, let's yeah. just put it this way i'm happier when people find stupid conspiracy coincidences in fiction than real life i'm yes. much rather prefer that yes so if you if you want to make if you want to make fanon like retcon theories about uh you know legend legend extended universe star wars canon characters Rather than Infowars.com, go ahead. Yeah, go that, ahead, guys. Go ahead. You'll, you'll take Info Jar Jar War- Sith Lord <laughs> yes. over so, any of that. Yeah. So, is Infowars essentially the real life legends thing? <laughs> yes. These are things that are not in continuity, they're but they're canon. But there's a lot of people that are really, really caught up in that canon. It's like, no, don't take this away. <laughs> this is all true. And it's, they're hanging on to those, you know, those two things that you can't explain, you know, and they're just like, ah. Oh, my mind is blown! It's all connected! Because, yeah, conspiracy theories are fan canon. Yeah. Oh, fantastic. Radio vs. the Martians is produced by Mike Gillis and Casey Doran. Our editor was Mike Gillis. Our theme music was written and performed by Todd Maxfield Matsumoto. Find us online at RadioVersusTheMartians.com and send us your feedback at info at RadioVersusTheMartians.com. The Reddit theory about Jar Jar Binks being a trained Force user, knowing Sith collaborator, and will play a central role in The Force Awakens. Here, I'll seek to establish that Jar Jar Binks, far from being simply the bumbling idiot he portrays himself as, is in fact a highly skilled Force user in terms of martial ability and mind control.